she came down the stairs and said, I really don't understand you. What are you doing? My wife had found me watching the Home Shopping Network, and I said, I just, I love to, I love to watch the Home Shopping Network. And she said, why? You don't like to shop, you don't like to spend money, and you don't like to cook, and everything that's on right now is a cooking product. And I said, it relaxes me. And she said, there's something seriously wrong with you. And I'm like, you're just now figuring that out. But alas, here we were in the conversation that she's just like, this doesn't make any sense. Why would you do this? And I can't really give you an answer other than to tell you watching the Home Shopping Network is my form of relaxation. Now, I recognize some people do yoga. Some people do puzzles. Some people can can watch golf or, or something along those lines to relax. I find it highly relaxing to watch the Home Shopping Network. I've never ordered anything off any of the off any of the Home Shopping Network that I've watched, but I find it highly relaxing to watch the sales pitch, to look at the psychology of what they're doing, to try to push every product, to let you know that every product is the best product, and you definitely need it to make your life easier. And there's just something about that that relaxes me. I don't know why that is, but it does. And one of the things that I've found that is a frequent tool that they'll use in trying to sell the product is to say, but wait there's more. But wait, there's more. We've already told you all these incredible, life-changing things that this product has to offer. But before you go, you need to know there's even more. Today, we're going to look at second at the book of 2 Peter. Over the course of the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at this little three-chapter book in the New Testament. So if you have your phones or your tablets, I'd invite you to follow along with us in the Bible app. It's a free resource that you can download in the app store of your choosing. And once you have it installed on your device, either enable your locations or type in zip code 54201. And there, Lakeside Community Church will pop up. You can follow along with us that way. If you have a traditional Bible with you this morning, you can go to the New Testament book of 2 Peter. That's where we'll be. We'll be looking at a chapter a week over the course of the next three weeks. And today we're in 2 Peter chapter 1. Or if you're joining us via the stream, the verses are available on the screen below as we look and we see the second book the Apostle Peter wrote saying, but wait, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, but wait, I've already told you all these incredible things, but there's even more that God wants to convey to you through me. And that's what we're going to look at over the course of the next few weeks in 2 Peter. And today we start in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, where we read these words. Simeon Peter a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, I just want to clear up any misconfusion that there can be when we say Simeon Peter. This is the Apostle Peter. This is the Peter, one of the three closest friends of Jesus, one of the disciples, an early figure in the early church, as we see throughout the book of Acts. And oftentimes he's referred to just as Peter. 
Elsewhere in Scripture, he's sometimes called Simon Peter. But it's only here in Acts chapter 15 that he's called Simeon Peter. And some translations, just to avoid any confusion, just change it to Simon Peter. But the New Testament was originally written in Greek. And if you go back to the Greek, it actually does say Simeon, both here and as well as Acts chapter 15. It's the only two places that it does this, which has caused some people a little bit of confusion. Well, is this the same Peter? And the answer to that question is a resounding yes. It's just a different, just a different uh, viewpoint on his name. For instance, my wife's name is Brooklyn. That's her legal name, Brooklyn. Sometimes I call her Brooke. Sometimes I call her Brooklyn. It kind of depends on what mood I'm in. Some of you may, may be named Madeline. Sometimes you're called Madeline. Sometimes it's Maddie. Sometimes you can go by Lynn. The same thing is true here of Peter. This is the same individual. It's just a different variation on his name. So this is still one of the three closest friends of Jesus. Jesus had 12 disciples, but amongst those 12, he had three really close friends. Peter, who wrote this letter, as well as James and John. This is the same Peter. So just to clear up any misconfusion that there could be there. And and based on what translation you're looking at, too, it might even say Simon. It it does say Simeon in the Greek, but it, it is the same individual. So just so you know what's going on here. And then he says, hey, this is who I am, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I'm blown away by this. I'm blown away by this as he says, hey, for for all of us who've made the decision to follow Jesus, we have an equal faith. All of us who've made the decision to follow after God, we have an equal faith. Now, if there was anyone who could ever leverage their relationship with Jesus and use that as a tool for other people to to basically worship him, if there was anyone who could leverage his his friendship with Jesus and use that as a way to say, hey, I'm a really big deal, it's Peter. He was one of Jesus' three best friends. Jesus had more interaction during his time on earth with Peter than almost anyone else. He was was in the inner circle. I recently saw the Elvis movie. I'm a big Elvis fan. And I'm always always fascinated by the people that were kind of in Elvis' sphere. And after Elvis' death, how all of them wrote a book and all of them came out and told their story, how they all try to sell their proximity to the king of rock and roll. And they all try to leverage the fact that they were close to Elvis for their own personal gain. If there was anybody who could have done that with Jesus, who could have sold the, the inside story, could have said, hey, look at me, I'm a really big deal, it's Peter. But what we see from both this introduction and his a life, as we look at Acts and other accounts of what he chose to do with his life, is not that at all. If there's anybody who could have leveraged their, their relationship with Jesus, it was Peter. But what did he do? He didn't leverage that to say, hey, I'm a really big deal. He didn't leverage that to build up his own entourage or his own, up, his own following. But instead, he used that to make a difference in other people's lives. He used that to serve one another. And what we see here right off the bat is there's no hierarchy. There's no hierarchy in faith. The fact that we have put our faith and trust in Jesus, we have a common faith. 
victories. Your faith is no more important than my faith, and it doesn't make you a bigger deal than me. Just because God accomplishes different things through us doesn't mean that you're more important and I'm less important or I'm more important and you're less important. There is no hierarchy of faith. And Peter brings that point home when he says, this is the common faith. And it's available to anyone who would place their faith and trust in Jesus. And it puts us all on equal footing. It makes us all the same. It makes us all the same. And how do we know that? Well, we know that because of the example that Peter lived through his life that we see in Acts and elsewhere in Scripture. But we also know it from right here. Notice how he introduces himself. Simeon Peter a servant, an apostle. He doesn't lead with, hey, I'm Peter, one of the apostles. Hey, I'm Peter, one of the disciples. Hey, I'm Peter, one of Jesus' three closest friends. He doesn't see himself first and foremost in that light. And as we're going to see a little bit later this morning, the end of Peter's life is near. His death is going to soon arrive. And I can't help but think that as he sits and as he reflects on the different moments of his ministry with Jesus and what God has done in his life and other times, and we know that he was reflecting on certain, on certain moments because of what we're going to see later today, we know he's sitting there reflecting on some of those memories. But as he's sitting there and as he's reflecting on some of the memories and some of the times that he's had with Jesus, I can't help but think in his mind he, he flashes back to the upper room. He flashes back to the night before Jesus would be crucified. And they're about to share a meal. And Jesus gets down. And he says, Peter, let me wash your feet. And he says, you're not washing my feet, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, Peter, you don't understand. What I'm trying to symbolize to you is the fact that you need me to cleanse you. And then Peter says, well, then not just my feet, Lord, but, but my whole body. Give me a bath. And Jesus says, let's not get carried away. I'm going to wash your feet, but this is what it's all about. For even the Son of Man, Jesus said, for even I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. I can't help but these words and these themes of Jesus' ministry are playing over and over and over in his head. And what we see from Peter is a prime example that our faith in Jesus compels us to serve one another. Our faith in Jesus compels us to make a difference in other people's lives. And here's Peter when he introduces himself. He's not like, hey, I'm the apostle. I'm one of Jesus' three closest friends. He says, I'm a servant. And our faith is common. And my desire is that your life would be changed. I'm giving my life to make a difference in your life. And that is the call for all of us who follow Jesus. That we would give our lives for the betterment of others. And that we would serve others in the process. And then as he concludes his introduction, he says this, I want grace and peace to be multiplied to you. I love that. I want grace and peace to be multiplied to you, not just added to you. I just don't want you to have some grace and peace. He says, I want these things to be multiplied. I want these to be hallmarks of your life. I want these things to just be in an abundance 
abundance in your life. And as followers of Jesus, if grace and peace are not hallmarks of our lives, if they are not things that define us, then we have to ask some hard questions. And we need to wrestle through what's going on in our lives and why these things are not prevalent in our lives. Because as people who follow Jesus, we, we are to have the fruit of the Spirit Grace and peace is to be prevalent. They are to be hallmarks of our lives. And Peter says, my desire for you is that your life would just be overflowing with these things. The grace and peace are the norm, not the exception to the rule, but these are hallmarks of your life. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. He says, don't lose sight of this fact. You are to leverage your life to serve others. You're to leverage your life to make a difference in other people's lives. And as people who follow Jesus also understand this, that God has offered us his blessing and he's called us to something greater. He's called us to something greater. He says this, our lives can and should look more and more like Jesus. That is what he means when he says partakers in the divine nature. Not that we're going to somehow become elevated to God's status. We will not become deities. We will not become God. But that as we go through the spiritual process that's called sanctification, which literally means each and every day, our lives as people that follow Jesus look more and more like Jesus and less and less like us. That every single day we move closer and closer to being people who emulate the life of Jesus. That's what our lives should look like. That's how our conduct should be defined. That when people look at us, what they see is us moving closer and closer to the life that Jesus lived, that we would, that we would live those things. And he says, this is your responsibility, that God would work in that way in you, and you would continue to grow more and more like Christ, that you have escaped corruption. You have escaped corruption and sinful desire. Those things are, those things are no longer, they no longer house you, but you've escaped all of that. A, a few years ago, my wife and I went, she had a work party, and they rented a bus, and we all loaded into the bus, and we went to an escape room. This is when escape rooms were, were all the craze, and, and the bus just unloaded, so there were 50-some people in this escape room, and I've, I've never been to another escape room, but generally I understand that, you know, the theme of escape rooms, you go through a, a puzzle of clues and you, you solve the various puzzles and then you find the, the key that gets you out of the escape room and you have a certain amount of time in order to do it. And then you get to hold up little signs that say we escaped or we didn't escape. You take a photo out. It's a great night. Well, I would just encourage you if you're ever going to do an escape room, that's really cool. But don't go with a bus full of people because when you go with a bus full of people, everybody kind of divides up in little groups. So you're just kind of working around the clues and you're not really corresponding with what you've already found and what you've already discovered. And it was a chaotic scene. And there was no way we were escaping this. So much so that half the people just quit and left the escape room and just hung out outside. They're like, that's enough. We're, we're out. This is, it's too chaotic. It, it, it's just it's too difficult. We quit. The world in which we live is incredibly chaotic. The world in which we live is sending all kinds of messages and all kinds of noise. And the sad thing is that some of the people that follow Jesus just throw in the towel. They say it's too chaotic. There's too much confusion. 
There's too much noise. So I'm going to love God, and, and I, I follow Jesus, but I'm just throwing in the towel, and I'm out. And, and God saved my soul, but I'm just kind of done. Because there's too much noise, there's too much confusion, it's too chaotic. And I want to encourage you, in spite of all the noise, like turn off the noise and recognize this is why engaging with God's revealed heartbeat to us in Scripture is so vital. Because with all the messages and all the noise, there is truth that is timeless. It's God's heart that's literally been revealed to us in Scripture and has been proven true time and time and time again. And with all the messaging and all the noise and all the chaos and all the confusion that's out there, this is why it is absolutely essential for those of us that follow Jesus that we are engaging with Scripture, which is heart, God's heartbeat revealed to us. And I want to encourage you, if that's you and you just said, ah, there's too much confusion, there's too much chaos, I'm just, I quit. Don't quit. Don't quit. I'd encourage you to turn off the news. I'm not encouraging you to be ignorant, but just turn off the news, analyze all the messages that are coming into your life, and remember, first and foremost, you have to listen to what's true. And elevate Scripture above every other message that you hear. And one of the things that Scripture tells us is test everything. Test everything that you hear. And the reason the Scripture can tell us that is because it is true. It's because it's from God, the author and creator of everything. It's because it's from God, the source of truth. And Scripture knows it has nothing to hide. I want to encourage you, if you've just given in, if you just said it's too chaotic, I, I just, I can't do it. Don't give up and don't quit. For this very reason, this isn't a new phenomenon. This was going on. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. He says, faith is your foundation. Your faith is your foundation. Now build upon it. These supplements, they make you more well-rounded. They make you even better and even sharper and even stronger in the end. Faith is the foundation, and you've got to build off that. You have to build off that. But as you build on that, this is the way that you build. That with your faith, you build virtue. And with your virtue, you build knowledge. And with knowledge... You build self-control, that you control yourself. You control your emotions. You control the words that you speak. You control your actions with self-control, steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness. Again, that your life is looking more and more like Jesus in this process and less and less like yourself and what you just naturally desire. And godliness with brotherly affection. That as we grow closer to God, what we recognize is that God has created us to live and to operate within community. God has created us to live and operate in community. And so we have to have care and we have to have concern for one another. And that we're invested and engaged in one another's lives. And with brotherly affection, love. And love guides us in everything that we do. These are the things that supplement our faith, that make us stronger. He goes on. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. 
and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. And there's the tragedy. There's the tragedy that can be true of our lives, that can be true of anyone's life. But there's the tragedy, especially for those of us that follow Jesus. And the tragedy is this, that we can love God, we can follow Jesus, and we can still lead ineffective and unfruitful lives. And God has called us to so much more than that. God has called us to so much more than that. God has called us to make a difference. God has called us to make an impact in our lives. And this is a reminder for us that we are not to waste our life, that we shouldn't go through life and just go through the motions. But instead, we should see each and every day for the gift that it is. Each and every day is a new day. It's a new opportunity. It's a new gift that tomorrow isn't promised to any of us. And so every single day when we wake up, we have a choice to make. Will I leverage today? Will I leverage today to make a difference? And sometimes when we think, hey, I want to make a difference, we have really bold visions and we have really big goals. And those aren't bad in and of themselves. In fact, those are healthy. It's healthy to have a vision and it's healthy to shoot after goals. But here's the problem. Sometimes we can put all the weight of our success in whether or not we fulfill that vision or whether or not we accomplish those certain goals. And we can become defeatist when if we've created a lofty vision for ourselves, we fall short of that vision. And we can discount and we can discredit all the progress and all the good things that we've done just because we happen to fall short of that thing. And so I want to free you up from that. And here's what I want to tell you. You need to wake up every day seeing that today is a gift. You need to wake up every day recognizing that tomorrow isn't promised and that God wants us to lead effective lives. He wants us to be difference makers. But he hasn't called us all to do these massive things. You want to make a difference? You want to have an impact in your life? You want to lead a fulfilling and fruitful life? And I hope the answer to that question is yes for all of us. Here's the secret. Just hit rewind, because we've just been told how to do it, that we would be people that follow Jesus, and that faith is our foundation for everything, and that upon that foundation, we would build, and we would build, and we would build, and we would build, and if we do these things, what happens? as we recognize the opportunities that we have. We recognize the opportunities that we have to serve others. We recognize the opportunities that we have to make differences. And that's what God has called us to. And what this frees us up to do is it frees us up to leave the results up to God. That we aren't responsible for the results. The results are ultimately God's responsibility. We are required to be faithful. We are required to conduct our lives this way. But it frees us up to release the results and recognize that those results are the responsibility of God and not our own. And he says, some of you, some of you, because you're living unfruitful and ineffective lives, you've just become so blind. 
You've become so blind. You've forgotten everything that God's done. You've forgotten how God's worked in your life. You've forgotten about the transformation that God made in you when you put your faith and your trust in Jesus. You've forgotten about all of these things. So this is the challenge for us. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom at our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, live to what you've been called. Live to what you've been called. He goes on. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Peter says, I'm dying soon. I'm dying soon. I have fewer days in front of me than I do behind. And I know the end is near. And I want to encourage those of you, especially who find yourself in that situation, that as you look at your life, you recognize, I have less days in front of me than I do behind me. This is what I want to encourage you with, that you would live out the rest of your life with the same mindset that we see demonstrated here by Peter. That you would recognize that while you have fewer days in front of you than you do behind you, that each and every one of them is a gift. And if you're not dead, it's because God isn't done with you. If you're not dead, it's because God isn't done with you. And I've met some incredible people who love Jesus, who were so bitter at the end of their lives. And the reason they were bitter at the end of their lives is because they desperately just wanted to be dead. They desperately wanted to be in heaven. They were bitter about the fact that they were still alive. And sometimes as people age, what, what occurs is they look back and they remember what they could used to do. They remember how they had more energy. They remember how there was more excitement. They remember what they used to be able to do. And now they're no longer able to do all of that. And it can become depressing. And it can lead to bitterness. It can lead to frustration. And if you're not careful, what happens when you look back and see what you could do, but what you can no longer do is you just throw in the towel and you say, well, I'm not as good as I was. So since I can't do it at that level, I quit. And there are probably some times that you should quit doing some certain things. But don't throw in the towel for everything. Don't become bitter. If you're not dead, you're not done. And here is Peter saying, the end of my life is near. But I'm going to use every day that I have left. And I'm going to leverage that as an opportunity to make a difference in other people's lives. And that must be our heartbeat. That it doesn't matter that we can't do everything that we used to be able to do. But instead, we say, I'm going to make a difference with what I can do. I'm going to impact the world. With each and every day, I'm given the opportunity. 
For we did not follow cleverly designed myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And here Peter's flashing back. He's remembering what he got to saw. He was part of an exclusive group. It was an event called the Transfiguration. It's available in the Gospels. Matthew chapter 18 is one of the places that it's available. But Jesus is up on a mountain peak. And he's on a mountain with just a couple of his closest friends, and Peter's one of them. And all of a sudden, in an instant, Jesus just starts glowing. It's like his, his clothes were entirely bleached, he's white, he's glowing, and all of a sudden they hear a voice from heaven that had to sound like James Earl Jones, this is my beloved son. Right? Like, God has to sound that way. He just does. Like, I mean, he doesn't have to, but I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to be so surprised in heaven if we get there and God's like, this is my son with him. Like, I mean, if God sounds like that, that's cool, whatever. Like, I'm not here to question what God sounds like, but I'm just going to be like, whoa, that one threw me. I got that one way wrong, God, way wrong. Didn't see that one coming at all. And I'm just going to spend the first couple days of eternity processing that, all right? It's going to take me a minute. But whatever God sounds like, there's this voice from heaven raining down as Jesus is glowing. Peter's looking around, and he doesn't really know what to say. Nobody does. He's like, hey, uh, Jesus, I'll build you a tent. We can stay here. Jesus is like, no, my work's not done. We're going to go down off this mountain. But here's Peter remembering moment, remembering a circumstance where God showed up and did the incredible. And I want to encourage you to have those markers in place in your life. And even in the quietness of this moment right now, you might have been following God for so long, you've lost sight of the incredible ways that God's worked in your life. And I just want to encourage you Remember those things. Remember those times when God showed up and it was so clear, it had to be God. When he blew away all your expectations. When he worked in such a way you just had to shake your head and say, there is no other explanation. It had to be him. And remember that. And what I love about this is this doesn't just happen, but God chooses to do this in front of witnesses, in front of witnesses who could record this for us, in front of eyewitnesses who could verify what happened and record it for us. And so on that foundation, we conclude chapter 1 when Peter writes, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. 
For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God, so they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, you might have wondered, hey, I, I follow Jesus. Why do I need to worry about the Old Testament? What difference does that make? Bunch of rules, bunch of regulations, bunch of vengeance. I'm all in on this grace thing. I'm all in on the fact that Jesus paid the price for our sin. He died on the cross. And those things are absolutely true. But the reason we need the Old Testament is it not only sets the scene for Jesus' first arrival when he came to be the sacrifice for our sin, but it also gives us a glimpse of the fact that God still has a plan for humanity. That we look at our world, and our world is spiraling out of control. It's full of confusion, and it's full of chaos. But it's not over. And if we've read the book, what we recognize is that the ending has already been determined. And in the end, God wins. And we might look at the scoreboard right now and realize, ah, it seems like we're trailing by a lot. We look at our world, and we don't see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, or self-control. We see an absence of all of those things. We look at our world, and it's like, God, we're losing. I don't know if we're in the fourth quarter or the first quarter. What I can tell you is this. The outcome's already been determined. And if we're losing now, it just means there's going to be a greater comeback. Because God wins in the end. And Peter says, don't give up your hope. When you look at the world, when you look at where you're living, when you look at all that's going on, don't give up your hope because it's not over. This isn't the end. God wins in the end. And oh yeah, by the way, this is guaranteed. This is God's guarantee to us that he wins in the end. So after they've given you all the information that you need, and the, but wait, there's more, they hit you with one final thing as they're closing up the sale. We'll back this product with a full 90-day money-back guarantee. It's to set your heart at ease. That as you are about to put in the order, no matter what you order, if you don't like it, you have three months to send it back and get your refund. It's the money back guarantee. It's to get you to sign it over and to seal the deal. And Peter here gives us a guarantee. That's greater than any money-back guarantee you'll ever be offered by any product or person that you buy a product from. But this guarantee is signed, sealed, and delivered by God himself. That we, as people that follow him, could serve others.
that our lives would emulate Jesus and become more and more like Him. That we wouldn't give up because it seems bleak, because we live in a world of chaos and confusion, but instead we would be motivated to see each and every day for the gift and opportunity that it is, and that we would leverage our lives to be difference makers for God. God, help us be difference makers for you. Help us leverage our lives and our opportunities each day that we have to impact the world, to impact others for you. I pray, God, that as people that follow you, our lives would look more and more like you every single day. I pray that the idea of an unfruitful and an ineffective life would not even be an option for us. But that each and every day we wake up recognizing the day for the gift that it is. We would be compelled to make a difference for you. God, I pray for the person that's grown bitter or frustrated because they can't do what they used to be able to do. And I pray, God, that while the temptation for them is very real, that they wouldn't just throw in the towel. And instead, they would leverage the opportunities that they do still have to make a difference for you. God, I pray each and every one of us would recognize the opportunities that you've given us and that we would point our neighbors and our coworkers and our families closer to you, Jesus, in every interaction we have with them. As we emulate you and grow closer to you and supplement our faith with the fruits of the Spirit, God, use us for your glory, we ask. In your Son, Jesus' name we pray.